All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Will Tingle. This week, we're taking a look at the genetics of selective breeding, how it might be dooming certain breeds of dog, but saving certain endangered species. Now, before we dive into how selective breeding is shaping the world's animal species, we must first ask what it is, how far it goes back, and perhaps what drove it to begin with. And so I spoke to author of Unnatural Selection, Katrina Van Groo. I think it's important to say what selective breeding is not. And it's very tempting to use the word interchangeably with domestication. And I consider these to be two very distinct processes. Domestication is the Transformation of wild populations of animals into self-sustaining populations of tame ones. Selective breeding, by contrast, is an ongoing, inexorable process, and that's what happens to those tame animals afterwards. And that's the deliberate breeding, or sometimes the unconscious selection by man into animals which are faster, more beautiful, more interesting, more productive, just plain different. Yes, I suppose that's true because in many ways we domesticate certain animals but we perhaps selectively breed more other animals that we don't choose to domesticate as we'll hear about later on in the programme. You can domesticate something without actually selectively or consciously selectively breeding by enclosing the animals, by feeding the animals. Uh, So, for example, foxes can be almost self-domesticated to get used to being in the proximity of man without man actually actively stepping in and choosing uh, which fox breeds with which. (laughs) With all that being said then, what would be considered the first animal that humans selectively bred? Dogs, without a doubt. So dogs would probably have, uh, wolves, wild ancestor of dogs, would have probably hung around human habitations to get scraps of food and accompanied humans on hunts, or maybe the humans accompanied dogs on hunts, and they almost self-domesticated before humans actually stepped in and began actively selectively breeding them. Was the idea then that we had these wolves and wanted them to stick around, so we decided to, one way or another, breed them so that the more uh, amiable traits, the more friendly traits were the ones that stuck around? People like to have animals. They like to keep animals. Children adopt animal babies that they pick up in the forest. They, they bring them home. They rear them. People like to be around animals. So an animal that's got an interesting marking, markings or, or might have been uh, more friendly than, than others may have actually been some of the first that were that were kept, maybe bred after that. It's difficult to say. Certainly, fast forward a few thousand years and people were actively, selectively breeding animals that they were keeping in their communities, uh, ceasing that hunter-gatherer lifestyle and settling down in permanent or semi-permanent communities and actually deliberately breeding livestock for food or wool, actively breeding and cultivating plants as well. But certainly dogs came first and uh, how much was deliberate breeding and how much was just uh, opportunistic it's very hard to say that's fascinating i'd never considered i just assumed that obviously wolves had wanted to be near us and we fed them and they became more amiable but i i assumed that that was the reason why we'd selectively bred them i didn't realize that the cosmetic value of having an interesting stripe or something like that went back so far I think it's just human nature. This is all very subjective, but it probably wouldn't have been too long before people were actually at least at least adopting cubs and uh, 
whether they were reared to maturity and actually bred, it's very hard to say. It could have taken many, many years before that happened. I uh, observed an interesting thing in a campsite in Bournemouth recently. We've got very tame foxes around here. I saw one in central London the other day, but these are foxes usually that are just tolerant. And uh, I've fed a fox around the corner from my home, uh, but these in, in Bournemouth were incredible. Uh, I was staying in a campsite for a week and these foxes weren't just tolerant, they were unfazed by close contact with people. Uh, it was something quite extraordinary. I'd, I'd never seen urban foxes so tame before. And it was impossible not to think about how wolves in the wild may have actually reached this stage. When did we realise what the process of selective breeding actually involved and, and then began to properly implement it across various species? I think we'd been very good at this for a very, very long time, but long before we began talking about uh, genomes, etc., skilled breeders have been selectively breeding and perfecting strains of animals for many, many hundreds of years. Genetics just put names to things and clarified a lot of the things which breeders knew before. Robert Bakewell was an absolute master, and uh, he swore by the practice of what, what he called breeding in and in, which we would call uh, inbreeding. And uh, from high school biology lessons, you remember that uh, recessive genes, they're not actually expressed until you get uh, the input from both parents. And by breeding in and in, Bakewell was able to actually expose some of these uh, harmful, potentially harmful traits, and there's nothing necessarily harmful about recessive genes, that uh, if they are harmful, then then you, know, you don't want them in your population. But uh, by breeding in and in, as he called it, by inbreeding, he was able to express these, these traits, and if he didn't want them, he would get rid of them from his population and just ruthlessly cull, which was a very, very good thing. So as long as uh, inbreeding is matched with this removal of unwanted traits or harmful traits from a population, then there's nothing intrinsically wrong with it. Katrina Van Groo. As Katrina was saying, whilst our infatuation with selectively breeding animals goes back a long way, the animal that may well have kicked it off was the dog. Whilst they were initially bred to help protect us, nowadays our canine counterparts in certain parts of the world are perhaps more of a fashion statement than a means of conserving livestock, hence the emergence of the phrase designer dogs. What are the side effects of us striving to create so-called pure breeds? And where do we draw the line, as has happened with the UK's ban of XL bullies? I took a trip down to the Cambridge Department of Veterinary Medicine to see Catherine Mellish. Humans have been probably selectively breeding dogs for possibly as long as 10,000 years ago. So somewhere between 10 and 5,000 years ago, humans sort of started to actively breed dogs to help them do the jobs they wanted them to do. Hunt primarily, guard, maybe herd sheep, and also serve some companion purposes as, as well. But I think it's safe to say that selective breeding has not been done as intensively in the past um, compared to what it's been done within the last maybe two or three hundred years when humans have really sort of ramped up the selective pressure to produce a far greater number of dog breeds, um, increasingly designed to um, not only behave a certain way, but to look a certain way as well. When you try and create a more and more specialised dog for a task you want to complete, it seems you're going to get a smaller and smaller pool of dogs you can choose from when you come to breed these. So what kind of issues arise when you have a smaller gene pool to select from? 
So to make the fastest progress when you're um, selecting for a particular trait, you can make progress very quickly if you breed dogs that are closely related to one another because they tend to share the characteristics that you're selecting for. And that, by definition, will lead to a decreasing gene pool. And that means that the dogs within that population their genetics are increasingly similar to one another. And that means that they can't adapt to new changes that that might come along. And they tend to have an increase in what we call regions of homozygosity within the DNA. And that can lead to an increase in deleterious genetic mutations or genetic variants that cause a particular disease. And um, selecting against those deleterious mutations becomes increasingly difficult when the dogs within the gene pool, their DNA becomes more or less the same as one another. Seemingly to counter this then, there's been, as I perceive it, an increase in two different species of dog being crossbred so that you get perhaps a more genetically diverse individual at the end of it. But is that always the case? I think the idea behind these designer breeds, you know, the cockapoos and the labradoodles is, yes, just as you've said, you get the best of the different breeds. I think they are perceived to be healthier because they are, in inverted commas, crossbreeds. But I think there's evidence that some of these dogs um, are just as inbred as what we think of as the purebred dogs because the breeders will take, for example, a Cocker Spaniel and breed it to a Poodle, and that's what we would call an F1 Cockapoo. But if that dog is then bred to a purebred Poodle or a purebred Cocker Spaniel, then you start to get inbreeding. And I think that some of these designer dogs that are bought are probably just as inbred as some of the purebred dogs. But my concern is that the people who are breeding these designer dogs are maybe not taking advantage of health testing to the extent that the the purebred dog breeders do. So they're not, you know, having the sort of hips tested or elbows tested or eye examinations or doing some of the genetic tests that the conscientious breeders of the purebred breeds are taking full advantage of. So I think they they can be a bit of a misnomer that they're crossbreds. Many of them are not crossbreds anymore. And so where do you think the action lies in this case to try and ensure that there's a greater genetic diversity when it comes to owning one of these dogs? I would like the puppy buying public to just become generally more aware of health issues that are associated with different dogs, different breeds of dog, different types of dog, and just get a lot more savvy about doing their research before they buy a dog. You know, I think most people do more research when they're buying a new fridge than when they're buying a new dog. The public, I think, is where this this situation can change. And if they, when they're buying a puppy, they're not afraid to ask the breeder of that puppy, you know, what health checks have the parents had? But a conscientious breeder won't mind you asking questions about how the puppy was bred and the health checks that the parents had in the same way that a conscientious breeder will ask the puppy buyer, you know, what kind of home are they going to be able to provide? I'm sure you're sick to death of it, but I couldn't come here and not ask you about the XL bully story developing with the UK government banning it and certain dog organisations saying that the ban is unreasonable. What's the genetics take on this? Is there any point in attempting to ban a breed if you can just recreate it? Or is there a genetically distinct XL bully that could be banned in the first place? 
I think the XL bully is a considerable problem for our society. They've been responsible for just over half of the sort of dog-related human deaths in the last couple of years. So I think, you know, it does need to be addressed. And I think it's very naive to ignore um, the fact that behaviours are inherited. You know, we're not surprised when our Labrador retriever puppy retrieves a ball or our whippet chases a rabbit. There's very good evidence that some breeds are likely to be more aggressive or have genetic tendencies to be more aggressive, and we have to acknowledge that. I think banning them is probably not the way to go necessarily. I think there's evidence that banning breeds of dog has not decreased the number of dog bites and dog attacks, for example. And there's the danger that when you ban something, you know, you make it something that's good to have and and drives the breeding of these dogs underground to some extent. Personally, I'm more in favour of encouraging the owners of these dogs to take a responsible stance them being muzzled in public is not a terrible thing to to ask owners. If the dog is trained to wear the muzzle, it's not a big deal. The dog will be perfectly happy wearing one. So I think, yeah, I'm I'm not particularly in favour of banning them outright, but let's put some measures in place that increase the, the responsible dog ownership aspect of keeping an XL bully. Catherine Mellish. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Will Tingle. This week, we're looking at selective breeding and the importance of a good, strong gene pool. Now, as Catherine was just talking about, the lack of genetic diversity in dogs is detrimental to their health. So, for the rest of the show, let's flip that on its head, because surely then, greater genetic diversity means greater odds of a species' survival. That's the thinking behind many endangered species conservation programmes, including London Zoo, which is part of the European Endangered Species Programme. And that's why I've taken one for the team, and come down to have a look. First up, a trip to the Indonesian island of Sumatra. I'm Ty Stubbington. I'm curator of mammals here for London and Whitsnade Zoo, and we're standing in tiger territory here. So they're Sumatran tigers. They are an island endemic species. They only occur now on the island of Sumatra. They have a very small population in the wild. Their population is under threat, so it's under threat from illegal wildlife crime, so killing both intentionally and accidentally. It's also under threat from habitat loss. Their population and their future, the population is very much uncertain at the moment. Smart tigers is estimated around 400, which is a very small number. It might sound like a lot, but actually in population times it's a very small number. Within zoos globally, we've got around 360. So again, the total number of this particular species of tiger is very, very small. <laughs> Listeners at home, we were slightly distracted by the tiger fighting and losing to a bucket there. But as we said earlier in the programme, there's naturally an issue with having a small gene pool and the health problems that come with that. And as you say, if there's 400 in the wild and 360 in captivity, then that's not a lot of genetic diversity to play with. How do you maintain as wide a gene pool as you can? So that's a really in question. And then you've highlighted as an island endemic species, like you know, inbreeding is, is something that we should be of and, and are aware of for the species. When it comes to managing our ex-situ population, as I say, we do that globally. And, and we do that by, one, having really good records. And we, at the moment, it's all done on pedigree analysis. So we know every single tiger within zoos globally. We know their lineage all the way back through to the original wild ancestors. 
That will be improved in the future because we're collecting samples and storage. We can then start to do molecular genetics, which then can really tell us exactly what's going on, which will then improve on the pedigree analysis. That data that we can take from pedigree analysis allows us to build a stud book, and from that stud book data we can then extract it into specialist software which allows us to model and predict both demographic characteristics of the population, how many males, how many females, do we have animals of the right age class, the right sex class, if we make any changes, breeding recommendation, how does that adjust that? But also we can then take genetic extrapolations from that. So we can look at levels of relatedness, we can look at how well represented the genes of the founders are in the population. We can also look at inbreeding, so we can work out for any given pair how inbred their particular offspring would be, or how any given individual is in terms of inbreeding back to the population. Once we've got those figures, that means we can then start to put metrics on decisions for our, our breeding pairs. What we try and do when we create new breeding pairs is make sure that the offspring of that particular pair are no more inbred than the rest of the population. So we try to make sure we keep inbreeding, the rate of that increase is minimal as possible. And the same goes for genetic diversity. So we can work out the relative amount of genetic diversity we have. We usually aim in our populations to have about 90% over 100 years. Smarter tigers currently are just over that globally, so we're in, we're in a good place. But again, when we make breeding recommendations, we can look at the out predicted offspring that would come of any particular pair, and we can say, is that offspring going to increase, decrease, or maintain the current level of genetic diversity in the population? So even though it's very small, the decisions we make we kind of make in an evidence-based way. The kind of crux of it comes, we've only got what we've got in terms of genes for some of these species, so we have to do the best that we've got. So we can't say, well, it's too far out one way or the other. We have to make the best that we can with what's available. What is the benefit of having a genetically diverse population? Part of it is our, our kind of responsibility that when we deal with wild animals to maintain as much as we've got because we can't recreate you know, these animals. We can't recreate genes, so we've got that kind of benefit of it. The, the other reason is kind of managing populations is the association with health, fitness, well-being. One of the things we want for our animals in our zoos is that they thrive, that you know, their well-being is utmost to us, but also that they're competent animals. And by that we mean that they're animals that are able to live and thrive in our ex situ within our zoo environment, but also potentially for those that have an insurance role, able to live and thrive in the wild environment so that they could then go on to produce you know, self-sustaining populations in the future. So genetics is a really key important part of that. So would it, would it be useful then if I was like, with you know so few of these in the wild and in captivity each one is therefore presumably i don't want to use the word valuable but there there is great value in having each one of them being peak fitness is there someone in charge who looks after each individual tiger and makes sure that they're at the sort of the peak of what they could be i think what's really important is it's the population overall is the most important thing then there's always a schism there between the individual and, and the population but in, in terms of, of people in, in, in charge of that, the way we organise ourselves is that for each species where we define there's an important role, going back to that process we spoke about, the, the tag will appoint someone to coordinate a programme. So within zoos, we call that a European ex situ programme. So I'm the coordinator for Sumatran tigers. But I don't do that alone. So we have uh, a colleague of mine who is uh, assistant coordinator. So that's Lucy Reed, who's one of our keepers. I'm also supported by a species committee of other people who have expertise in tigers within European zoos within Europe. I'm also supported then by advisors. So we had two veterinary advisors. We have a conservation advisor, a science advisor. 
uh, and a population biologist to, to survive. So I know a little bit, but I'm not a specialist in those, those roles. We, uh, we then operate as a group then to monitor the population, make recommendations to make sure that our links with our in-situ partners are strong. And one of the outcomes of that was that we created a, uh, a kind of subset of, our, our, of ZSL uh, called Wildcats Conservation Alliance, which funnels all funding directly out for tiger conservation projects in situ. So we make sure that we're linked up in a kind of one-plan approach, so both animals that are in captivity and animals in the wild so we're not just separate entities and also when I go back to making that decision we have people from range states range state university those that are working with tigers institute feeding into our decisions as to why we have tigers within zoos overall uh, and with tigers also we as I say collaborate again it comes on a global species management program there's going to a group of us that meet regularly to talk about tiger globally both the kind of in situ and the kind of ex situ population a lovely burgeoning population of healthy genetically diverse tigers what's the plan after that is it as simple as just throwing them back out into the wild reintroductions of animals back into the wild sounds really simple it's actually really complex it involves not just kind of biological aspects of putting a tiger back into the wild you need to consider the social aspects of it the cultural aspects of it the cost aspects of it, as well as then looking at the biological factors, as in is there enough sustainable habitat, is there enough prey. We also at ZSL have the expertise looking at disease, so we do a lot of disease risk analysis work to make sure that when we introduce an animal back into the wild, we're not reintroducing new diseases which could then harm potentially fragile ecosystems, and there's all the disease screening work that goes to make sure the individual animals are then put back into you know, uh, a wild situation appropriately. So it sounds really good. It's actually really difficult to do. And for tigers, you can imagine in the kind of complex environment where the threats are still present and there's so much uncertainty about the security of the wild population that that's not necessarily the right thing to be doing at the right time. So when we do introductions, we're looking to return viable, long-term, self-sustaining populations that don't need conservation intervention. So it's not just kind of like a case of returning animals nicely back into the wild, it's actually really achieving a long-standing, worthwhile goal. So that's the case when you have a very endangered species. But if we take things a step further, what happens for species that are extinct in the wild and only exist now in zoos? It's over to the Tropical Birdhouse to find out more. Hi there, my name is Gary Ward and I'm the curator of birds here at the Zoological Society of London. I think this is going to be the hardest interview of my entire career, really going to take all of my journalistic integrity because we are in, as I'm sure you've twigged by now, listeners, a room full of exotic birds. But as a first point, we've just come from the Sumatran Tiger Enclosure where we've looked at the importance of genetic diversity when there are still individuals out there in the wild. But in the case of a few of the birds in here, they are extinct. Yeah, so the species that we have in here that's probably the most important species at uh, ZSL, I would arguably say, is our Socorro doves. So this species has been extinct in the wild since the mid-70s. Socorro Island is 600 miles off the west coast of Mexico. So one of the things that, the big difference is when you've got an extinct in the wild species, there's a reason they're extinct in the wild. Before you can consider putting them back into the wild, you've got to then make sure that the wild is a safe place and a suitable place for them to survive. And those limiting factors have been dealt with. There are species that are extinct and there are species that are functionally extinct. And there's the issue that if you don't have enough of a population, there's going to be a genetic bottleneck. Is that something that you are planning to avoid or is that not a problem in this instance? Yeah, for sure it's a problem. But there's not much that we can do about it in the case of the Socorro dove. The species itself has been extinct in the wild 
since the mid-70s. But the captive population that we have now, which is the last opportunity to save that species, has been in captivity since the 1920s, 1926 in fact, when the Academy of Sciences in California, from San Francisco, brought in some birds um, from Socorro and brought them into captivity. And the whole global captive population now all stemmed from these four individual birds that came to the UK. And then we're left with a really small gene pool. And that's, we haven't got any choice. We can't make that any better than what it is. But in saying that, currently today there's 161 Socorro doves in captivity around the world, in Europe, but also in North America and most crucially in Mexico. So it does prove that even from a very small gene pool, you can build up a population. But for sure these birds are extremely inbred. But then also I would say that it's not a lost cause either because there's many cases with bird species in particular, and particularly island bird species, that have gone through massive bottlenecks and recovered from that. So we've talked about the Sakara dove as well and the importance of keeping a, a strong gene pool, as it were. But there are species in this, this very, very loud and very wonderful birdhouse here that are perhaps not as endangered, but is there equal reason to keep them as genetically healthy in here as well? Absolutely, and, and most of the species in here have been evaluated very carefully by um, a panel of experts, not just within European zoos, but within IUCN specialist groups as well, to review their requirement or their role as species that we maintain in captivity. And a lot of times there is an educational role, which is very, very important, so that we can inspire those young conservationists, or those future young conservationists or politicians or whatever, so that they can go forward and, and have an appreciation from animals. The other thing, we have species in here which have very strong and powerful model roles. So like uh, emerald doves, we've got couple of emerald doves perched in the tree behind you there. So they are closely related to Socorro doves. So our keepers working with emerald doves, understanding the incubation and the hand rearing of that species, can then apply that, for example, to recovery programs of the Socorro dove or other species that we're working with. So everything has its role, and even the least concerned species that we may have here in the collection has a really important role in developing our understanding and our knowledge, which we can then apply to the more uh, endangered species. Obviously, this is a, it's a very encouraging sounding story, but generally speaking, the global trend of biodiversity is a downward one. There's going to be a lot of more cases of birds becoming more endangered in the future. And the question, therefore, kind of becomes, with limited time and resources, how do you choose which birds to save? I mean, you know, the reality is we're not going to be able to save everything, you know, and that's something that I think in us in the conservation world are well aware of. But there's an awful lot that we can save. And we need to mobilise global community to do more. And what's quite heartening is young people nowadays are fully aware of environmental issues. And they're driving you know, a lot of the you know, policy change within governments, various different things, you know, the campaign against climate change, all those different things. Right? So they're all really, you know, that, that gives me hope at least. And also, um, we, we know how to restore species back into the wild or, or recover species that haven't gone extinct in the wild yet. We've got the techniques and we've got the knowledge. Um, and every species is, is a different challenge, of course. But it's just a matter of, you know, bringing the resources together and invariably that's funding, you know. And because the expertise is there, we need to share that expertise so that more people have got the, the knowledge. Um, we need to get the better funding we need to and we can go ahead and, and actually recover a lot of species but we're not going to do it all and and that's that's the reality but at the same time when you start when you restore 
so, so back to the Socorro Dove, we restore the Socorro Island to make it suitable for Socorro Doves. It then also safeguards the three other critically endangered endemic bird species that live on that island as well. So we're not saving Socorro Dove in isolation of the whole ecosystem of Socorro. You know, it's the Socorro parakeet, it's the Socorro mockingbird. You know, those birds will also benefit from the effort that we do to restore the Socorro Dove back out into the island. To cap off the entire programme, how much of a, a role do you think increasing genetic diversity has to play going forwards? We create pairing recommendations based on the genetic diversity that we know of within our breeding programs. And that is important and it's something we need to, when we've got that genetic diversity to start with, we need to make sure that we maximise that opportunity. Because that, that then allows the species to have all the characteristics and the adaptations available to them naturally to survive in the wild or to, or to evolve into new environments that they may need to, be, need to evolve to to survive in the wild as environments change. Sometimes there's not much we can do about it, but it, you know, in some cases you know, species can still recover, even with a small gene pool. A huge thanks to Tyke Stubbington and Gary Ward, and to London Zoo for hosting me as well. That's it for this week. Next week we'll be taking a closer look at Parkinson's and the new and innovative treatments that are being used to help treat the debilitating disease. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Will Tingle. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.